Our text for this morning is going to be found in the book of John, chapter six, verses one through 21. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, would you meet me in the book of John, chapter six, verses one through 21. This morning I'd like to invite you into the story found at the beginning of John chapter six. I'm gonna be preaching uh, what's called a narrative sermon today, and all this means is that I'm simply going to use the text along with a little bit of creative imagery to try and bring this story to life, to, to see exactly what's happening in these pages of scripture. And though this is a familiar text, it's a familiar story, my, my hope and my encouragement for all of us is that we could approach this story, this narrative, with our whole heart, as if it was the first time that we've seen it. And with that being said, I'm gonna ask you to pray with me one last time. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Lord, we humbly ask that you guide our hearts and our minds in the instruction of your word. We invite your spirit to be with us. Attune our hearts to your will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. These are the first three verses, the first three sentences of John's Gospel. From the very beginning of John's writing, he wants his reader, he wants you and I to understand exactly who he's writing about. You see, friend, John is not writing a story about a mere man. John is not writing a story about himself. This is not an autobiography. Rather, John is writing a story about someone who is much greater than himself. He's writing about an astonishing individual by the name of Jesus. And in just five short chapters, John reveals several miraculous signs, five to be exact, that display just who this Jesus is. John records, first of all, that he had seen the Spirit of God coming from heaven, descending in the form of a dove and resting on this man named Jesus. Secondly, John records that while attending a wedding in Cana, Jesus miraculously turned six enormous jars of mere water into luxurious wine. Third, John records that Jesus explained to a woman from Samaria all that she had ever done without ever having met her before. John records that Jesus healed the son of a Gentile official without even being in the son's presence and just saying five words, go, your son will live. And lastly, before our story today, John records that Jesus healed a 38-year-old man who had been lame his entire life. And friends, word of Jesus' miraculous abilities is starting to spread. And at the very beginning of our story today, we find Jesus crossing the Sea of Galilee, going to the eastern hill country so that him and his disciples could spend some time together. And at the very beginning of our story, in chapter 6, verse 2, we find this detail. And a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. You see, two of Jesus' previous five miracles, 
took place in the land of Galilee, the turning of water into wine and the healing of the royal official's son. And when things like this occur, it's bound to get out. Word is bound to start spreading. And this was not the first time that Jesus had been in the midst of the Galileans. Actually, in chapter 4, we find that Jesus had come into the midst of the Galileans, and they were there excited that he had come specifically because of miracles that he performed at a previous Jewish feast. And at the beginning of our story today, we find that these Galileans are again excited that Jesus has come into their presence, into their portion of the world. But they're excited specifically because of the miraculous signs that Jesus has been doing. See, they really liked this guy named Jesus. He did some pretty cool things. I mean, for the Galileans, it was as if the circus was coming to town. Some of the individuals in this crowd, they've, they've heard of Jesus' miraculous signs and his powerful teachings. Some of them, I'm willing to guess, may have even known the royal official son. And some people in this crowd were the ancient day equivalent of paparazzi. They'd heard what Jesus had done and they wanted to see it for themselves. They wanted to see the next cool thing that Jesus was going to do. They wanted to see what other cool tricks, what other teachings that this man named Jesus might just have up his sleeve. So when the crowd saw Jesus getting on a boat and heading east across the Sea of Galilee, they dropped what they were doing and they headed to see the next show. But after Jesus and his disciples reached their destination, they found a place alone, a little ways up the hill, to go and sit by themselves. But it's at this point in the story, very early on, that John gives us a strange detail. Look with me at verse four. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now this is odd. Why would John, at the beginning of the story, tell us this detail? It seems strange. And the reason is because the Passover, Passover and the conjoined feast of unleavened bread was a time of celebration for the Jews. You see, at this moment in history, the nation of Israel was non-existent. The Jewish people were under Roman rule. The Passover then was a time for them to celebrate their Jewish heritage. It was, to, it was a time to celebrate their Jewishness and to look to their past and specifically celebrate a time where their ancestors were free. Specifically, Passover celebrated the liberation of the Jews from Egypt by Moses, a time where the people were led out of slavery. They were liberated and eventually a time where they had their own nation. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was much like America's celebration of the 4th of July. Except, at this moment in history, these Jews that were surrounding Jesus, they had to look to their past to celebrate a freedom that was rather than celebrating a freedom that is. John wants you and I, he wants us to see the emotional context of this crowd. He wants us to know what's going on in the heart of this multitude. But back to our story. While Jesus is sitting with his disciples just a little way up the hill, he looks out among this crowd of people and he sees that they're beginning to come towards him. And in Mark's account, we find that members of this crowd, they had actually run to this location 
And some members of the crowd, they were so eager that they had run across the entire tip of the, the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, and they had run to the spot where Jesus was. Even they ran so fast, some of them, that they beat Jesus and the disciples who were traveling by boat. And the journey had to have worn some of them out. But what's interesting is that they've run to the middle of nowhere. Jesus and his disciples, they were looking for a place to go off by themselves, to spend time alone with each other. So they went to a desolate place, (laughs) aka a place that had nothing but hills, trees, and grass. The venue was desolate. It It was beautiful, but it lacked civilization. And the downside of being in the middle of nowhere is that there was no place for the people to eat. You see, this crowd, they'd made quite a journey. They wanted to see Jesus, and I bet the majority of them didn't think to pack a lunch that day. Some of them, they had to be tired from their journey. Some of them had to be getting hungry. But the problem was that if the crowd was going to find something to eat, they would have to travel to another town. They'd have to travel further away. There wasn't a village that they had gone to. The place was desolate. Or maybe they'd even have to go all the way back home to get some food. Thus, I'd imagine that as Jesus is standing a ways up the hill and he sees this crowd moving towards him, I'd imagine that he began to see hungry faces. This mob of people, they gathered throughout a hill country. They were looking at Jesus with anticipation, but I have a feeling they were also looking with empty stomachs. And you have to wonder if some of the people in the crowd were growing irritated because of their hunger you know exactly what I'm talking about. In my opinion, the term hangry ought to be a medical diagnosis, right? You know what I'm talking about. You're rushing to work one day, you forget your lunch, it's in the fridge, you nicely packed it the night before. You get to work and you realize, oh no, I left my lunch at home. But that's okay, I can make it through. I don't need food today, I'll be fine. 10 o'clock rolls around, you're feeling great. 11 o'clock's passing by. 12 o'clock gets here, you're at lunch, and you're thinking, oh, I can do this. I'm a champ. I don't need any food. But right about 2.30, your stomach won't stop talking to you, and you're about ready to slap the next person that bothers you. (laughs) Yeah, laughs. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So think of how this crowd might be feeling, though. They're warm. They're tired. They're sweaty, even dirty from traveling throughout the countryside. And they finally get to Jesus, and there ain't a McDonald's in sight. But Jesus, he he recognizes their need. And out of compassion, Jesus decides he's going to care for this multitude. We should take a moment to note that this crowd, according to John, consists of 5,000 men. Now, I grew up in a town of about 5,000 to 6,000 people in Iowa. Meaning Jesus looks out among the crowd and decides, I'm going to feed the population of a small town today. But notice the detail that it's 5,000 men. Well, Evan, what does that mean? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say 5,000 men. But the interesting detail comes in the Gospel of Matthew where he confirms this number did not include women or children. It's estimated This crowd of 5,000 men was probably more like 15 or even 20,000 people. And with this in mind, Jesus looks out and he says, I'm going to feed them today. But before he does, he does something interesting. Look with me at verse 5. 
Jesus turns to Philip, one of his disciples, and he says this, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? (laughs) Now put yourself in Philip's shoes for just a moment. You're standing in the middle of nowhere, you're trying to spend some time with your mentor and your friends, and you can barely enjoy each other's company because a group of roughly 20,000 men, women, and children, they won't leave you alone. So if I was Philip, my guess is I would probably be hungry, a little tired, growing irritated, and frustrated that this multitude of 20,000 people keeps following you around and destroying your plans. But also, to add to Philip's pressure, Philip's a local. Turns out, Philip grew up in a town just north of here called Bethsaida. So Jesus turns to Philip, and he says, Philip, you're from around here, where can we buy bread for all these people? But notice with me, take a look at the detail we find in verse 6. We find that Jesus said this to test him, to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip and the rest of the disciples, they've spent a good amount of time with Jesus by now. Jesus called Philip to follow him at the very end of John chapter 1, and now we find ourselves at the beginning of John chapter 6, meaning Philip has had quite a bit of time and seen quite a cool things from Jesus. They've seen his miraculous ability and his powerful teaching. Friends, to the average human, this question that Jesus asks, hey, where should we buy bread for 20,000 people? That question would have been ludicrous. But for Philip, the answer should have been obvious. However, let's look at Philip's answer in verse 7. Philip says to Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Now remember, Jesus asked where. Jesus asked where they were to buy bread, and Philip dismisses that question of where, the question of location altogether, and he goes straight to the how. Philip answered by pointing out the impossibility of buying bread at all. A denarius was that day's, uh, was the equivalent of one day's worth of work for the common laborer in Roman times. So Philip, he's turning to Jesus and he's saying, eight months worth of wages wouldn't be enough for each of them to even get a snack. In a nutshell, this is what Philip is saying to Jesus. Are you crazy? Why are you asking me where to buy bread when you should be asking where are we going to get the money? Unfortunately, friends, Philip was too short-sighted to see that the answer to this question was actually standing right in front of him. Philip is what I like to refer to as epic fail number one. But don't worry, Philip. You're not the only one who's going to strike out today. It's okay. You've got company. Because Andrew has decided to step up to the plate. But interestingly, Andrew was a little bit more resourceful than Philip. And while Philip was answering Jesus, Andrew used that time to start scanning the crowd just to see if somebody had some food with them. And when Philip finished speaking, Andrew steps up to the plate and he says this in verse 9. Andrew says, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now stop right there. Don't keep reading. If I could have only said that to Andrew. Stop right there, Andrew. (laughs) Andrew. I'm thinking to myself, Andrew, you're, you're so close. You're so close to appearing that you have faith in the one whom you're talking to. You're so close to appearing like you understand who you're talking to. If 
he just would have stopped right there at five barley loaves and two fish. He would have appeared to have faith, but he didn't stop. He kept going. The doubting stream kept flowing out of his mouth, and he finished the statement, much like Philip, at the end of verse 7, saying this, but what are they for so many? (laughs) Disappointing. (laughs) Andrew is what I like to refer to as epic fail number two. Now, if you're like me and you you read these two reactions from Jesus' disciples, you might be wondering how in the world, how could they have walked with Jesus and not yet understood his miraculous, wonder-working power? Why was it that upon hearing this question of where to buy bread for this crowd, that Jesus' very own disciples could not realize that the answer was standing right there in front of them? It was staring them in the face. If Philip and Andrew would have understood who they were talking to, the answer that they would have given to Jesus' question would have been something like this. You know, Jesus, I don't know where we're going to get all this bread, but I believe you can do it. And I believe you're going to feed them today. But rather than a faith-filled answer, we hear two faithless responses, two epic fails. So Jesus... He's standing before an enormous crowd who just want to be entertained. And at the same time, he's surrounded by his friends who still don't understand who he is. But regardless of the circumstances, Jesus has compassion. And he has a plan. Jesus has a plan to feed this enormous crowd. And rather than sharing his plan with his disciples, he starts by doing this. He gives instruction to them, saying, have the crowd sit. And while the crowd is sitting, Jesus finds this young boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. And barley, kind of a side note, barley was considered the poorest of breads in Roman times. One scholar said that barley was had less taste than other bread, and it was harder to digest. Another scholar said that barley was a staple of the Roman poor. So Jesus goes up to what's most likely a poor boy who's got five barley loaves and two fish, just enough for him to have lunch this day. And he asks him for it. And though Jesus had just heard two faithless responses from his friends. This young boy gives his bread to Jesus. He gives his bread and his fish. Now, if I were the boy, I don't know if I would have done that. That was all that he had for the day, but he faithfully gives it to Jesus. And the next thing that Jesus does is he takes the five barley loaves and the two fish, and he holds them, and he gives thanks. Meaning, he says a prayer to the Father, And he says something along the lines of, I'm not sure what his words are, but Father, thank you for the meal we're about to receive. Now put yourself in the crowd's shoes for just a moment. You're standing watching this man named Jesus, and he's lifting up five barley loaves, a.k.a. two hot dogs and two hot dog buns, and he's saying, thank you, Father, for the meal we're about to receive. (laughs) If I was in the crowd, I'd be thinking, man, how is that going to feed me? But what happens next is miraculous. After Jesus finishes saying the prayer, he begins distributing the five barley loaves 
and the two fish. And as the loaves begin spreading throughout the crowd, the loaves didn't stop until the entire crowd had been served. As each member of the multitude took pieces of bread from the loaves and pieces of meat from the fish, they kept replenishing. Piece by piece, the loaves didn't run out until everyone had what they wanted, and the fish kept multiplying. Look with me at verse 12. We see that when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and they filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Friends, Jesus multiplied both bread and fish so that a crowd of roughly 20,000 people could eat. But they didn't get just a few bites. They didn't get a snack. The text says they ate till they were full, a.k.a. they had as much as they wanted. But how? How could the equivalent of two hot dogs and two and a half hot dog buns feed nearly 20,000 people? And several months ago, while we were studying Jesus' miracle at the wedding of Cana, we heard that in order for Jesus to turn water into wine, he would have had to have miraculously changed the molecular structure and created brand new atoms out of nothing inside the water in order for it to be turned to wine. And that act of the water turning to wine, uh, that act of changing the water, was similar to the act of creation itself, creation out of nothing, creation ex nihilo. And we must confess, friends, that a similar miracle is happening here in John chapter 6. You see, Jesus was not going out and baking more bread. He was not going out and catching more fish. He was miraculously multiplying the very baked bread and the pickled fish into more and more and more and more bread and fish. Jesus was creating more bread and fish miraculously out of nothing. He was creating it out of thin air. So much so to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. So much so to have 12 baskets of bread left over. Now if Jesus, if I had seen him take five small loaves of bread and turn them into 12 baskets, if he had just done that, I would have been impressed. But he did it so much so to feed 20,000 people. That's the equivalent of my hometown three to four times over. If this room was filled to maximum capacity, it would take 10, if not 11 times to feed it. That's how many people that Jesus fed, plus he had leftovers. Friends, I have to say that's miraculous. Amen? But I ask again, how? How could Jesus do this? Friends, it's because this man This man named Jesus, he's no mere man. He's God. And I wish, I wish that the story ended here, but unfortunately it doesn't. We see in verse 14 that as the crowd realized what Jesus had done, after they tasted of his goodness and provision, literally tasted of it, we find that they wanted more. Look with me at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And in verse 15, we find that they wanted to make him their king. By calling Jesus the prophet, they're referring, these Galileans, they're referring to a a specific statement made by Moses that I'll read for you from Deuteronomy 18, 15. 
Moses said this to the people of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. These Galileans, they believed that the prophet like Moses had come, and they were hoping, though, that like Moses, Jesus would lead them out of captivity. They were hoping that Jesus would break their chains of Roman occupation and deliver them from their earthly political sorrow. This is the ancient day equivalent of the children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody? I'll I'll, I'll give a summary real quick. (laughs) If you give a mouse a cookie, he'll ask for some milk. If you give a mouse milk, he'll ask for a straw. If you give him a straw, he'll ask for a napkin. If you give him a napkin, he'll ask for a mirror. And the story keeps going until it gets back to him getting another cookie. You see, friends, Jesus was performing signs and miracles among the people of Israel. So then they began following him, hoping to see more signs and miracles. Then Jesus feeds the multitude following him, and now they want more. They want Jesus to bring them freedom from Rome and reestablish the nation of Israel. What's sad, friends, is the people, they had rightly identified Jesus as their long-awaited prophet like Moses and their long-awaited king but they wrongly understood what that meant. They only wanted Jesus to be a prophet and a king in order to fix their current circumstances. They didn't care about who Jesus really is. They only cared about what he could do for them. And Jesus, sadly, Jesus perceives that. He perceived their zeal. He perceived their desire to take him and make him king, and we see at the very end of verse 15 that Jesus withdraws again by himself up the hillside. And this is where our story ends. It's a sad ending, isn't it? And some of you might be thinking right now, well, Evan, this is an interesting story, but what's the point? What's the big idea? Why have you shared this with us? And friends, the main point that I have for us this morning boils down to one question. And please don't miss this question. If there's anything you hear, I want it to be this this morning. The question is this. Do you follow Jesus for what he does or who he is? The question I want all of us to ask ourselves, to be introspective this morning, is do you and I follow Jesus for what he does or do we follow Jesus for who he is? And you, you see, we have two responses to this question in our story this morning. The first response is from the multitude. This crowd of people, they've either seen or heard of the miracles that Jesus has previously performed. And they were only following him, according to John chapter 6, verse 2, they were only following him because of those miraculous signs. But even after they experienced the miracle of Jesus multiplying bread and fish, rather than worshiping him for who he is, they get excited about what else he could potentially do for them. And they try and make him king. You see, friends, this crowd, what I want us to see is that this crowd followed Jesus merely for what he did. They didn't care about who he is. First response is from the crowd. Second response we see this morning is from Jesus' very own friends, his disciples, Philip and Andrew. 
Jesus is Philip and Andrew's mentor, and though they're not, they're not merely following Jesus because of what he does, it seems that they too do not yet fully understand and realize who he is. Do you see the difference? If they had realized Jesus' identity, they would have answered the question of where to buy bread with faith in him. They've spent much time with Jesus, and sadly, they still, at this point, don't understand who he is. Thus, we know the first response from the crowd. We know the second response from the disciples. But there's a third response I'm interested in this morning. It's your response to that question. It's my response. Do you and I follow Jesus for what he does or who he is? And in order for us to answer this question, I have two brief questions to help us internally inspect our hearts. Question number one, do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know his identity? Who is Jesus? And friends, John wants you and I to understand this three-word statement. Jesus is God. From the very beginning of John's gospel, which I read at the very beginning of our sermon this morning, he points us to this one fact. Jesus is God. He is the righteous God of all of creation who's taken on flesh and come to the very earth which he created and was created through him. He is the word in flesh. Jesus is God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, what the Old Testament calls the great I am. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is called the lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain. He is the prophet like Moses, the prince of peace, Emmanuel, the one who was and is and is to come. He is the king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is Yahweh in the flesh. And he is God, amen? amen? If there's one thing you know here this morning, it's Jesus is God. This truth is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. To be a follower of Christ, it means to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning he is God. Do you believe this? Do you believe that truth? Do you know who Jesus is? Question number one. Question number two. Is Jesus the gift or merely the giver? Is Jesus mainly the gift of your life or is he merely the giver of the things you want? Do you follow and worship Jesus because you love him, because of who he is, or because you want to receive something from him? I'm asking myself the exact same question this morning, friend. And a great way to test this question, to diagnose our hearts, is to simply examine our motivations for coming here this morning. Did you and I come to worship this morning out of obligation or out of a desire to receive something from a holy and righteous God, or did we come this morning because we love him and he is God? Have you come to church this morning to worship Jesus with hopes of gaining something from him? Health, wealth, a job, a college acceptance letter, a spouse, a car, a home, some sort of favor? Or have you come this morning to worship the God of all creation? I can ask myself the same question. Did I come this morning to preach a message because it's my job or it's what I've been asked? Or did I come to worship 
Jesus. Do you see the difference? Please don't misunderstand me. Please don't misunderstand me. It is okay. Actually, it's commanded that we joyfully give thanks and we joyfully worship God and give thanks to him for the provisions in our lives and for the miraculous things that he's done. After all, the Old Testament refers to God as Yahweh Yireh. Some pronounce it Jehovah Jireh. It's Yahweh Yireh, meaning the Lord will provide. But our faith, it cannot be founded on Jesus as a giver or a genie with which we make wishes to. Our faith must be founded on and spurred on by the fact that he is the God of all creation who loves us. Listen how John Piper explains the point that I'm getting to. John Piper says this. He says, to know myself and how I'm prone to use Jesus instead of love Jesus to delight in him, be satisfied in him, pursue him for him, to know that he came to be bread for me, not mainly give bread to me, that he, meaning Jesus, might be mainly gift, not just giver. Piper asks, will you have him as the satisfaction of your soul, or must you have his gifts, and if he won't give them to you, you're done with him? Do you and I value Jesus Do we value Jesus more than what he provides for us? If I had a friend that came to me and said, you know, Evan, I sure don't care about you, but I like the benefits of being your friend, (laughs) I'd be a little concerned. I'd be a lot concerned, actually. But, friends, I know in my heart that I can do the exact same thing to Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? So brothers and sisters, I believe John is wanting us, the gospel writer John, is wanting us to see this morning that our faith must be founded first and foremost on Jesus' identity, Jesus' God, and not merely as the provider of things we need or things we want. There's one last scene we need to take a look at this morning in John chapter 6. It's at John 16, John, excuse me, 6, verses 16 through 21. Consider this the post-credit scene from an Avengers film, okay? You, you won't regret sticking around to see it. In John 6, verse 16, we see this. When evening came, his disciples, this is the evening, by the way, of the feeding of the 5,000. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, a.k.a. to the middle of the Sea of Galilee, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But Jesus said to them this, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately The boat was at the land to which they were going. Notice this very important piece of this story. Notice what Jesus says first. It is I. Jesus immediately announces who he is. He announces his identity. He doesn't say first, hey, I can make these waves go away. He doesn't say first, hey, I can save you. He doesn't say first, He doesn't say, first, I can make all of this disappear. What's he say first? It is I. 
And because of who he is, they don't have to be afraid. Brothers and sisters, Jesus announces who he is because he's God. And I believe what John is wanting us to see is that the fact that Jesus is God must be at the core of our understanding of who he is. Interestingly, Matthew and Mark have this exact same story of the walking on water. Matthew and Mark started off by saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And I believe John is leaving those first two words off for us to see something important, and that's Jesus' identity. I believe John wants us to see who Jesus is. So let me ask all of us, and including myself, this question one last time this morning. Do you follow Jesus for what he does? Or do you follow Jesus for who he is? Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Can we just sit here this morning in awe of who you are? Lord, I pray that all of our hearts would allow your spirit to work inside of us, to to show us the answer to this question and to help us live out the question of wanting to serve Jesus for who he is, not merely for what he does. In Jesus' name, amen.